uh, humor me for a second, take a guess. Uh, how many days has someone been lost at sea and survived? Just take a, a random guess, how many days do you think? 20 and 400, whoa. 100. Sorry? 100. 100. 400 is actually kind of close. 438 days lost at sea on a boat out, like no help at all. That's like over a year, 13 months. Here's a picture of the guy who survived that. The day after he survived, um, Jose Salvador Avarenga. He's a Salvadorian fisherman. He was found in 2014. It's not like this happened a long time ago, it's 2014 and he was 36 years old. Uh, what happened is he was in this seven-foot boat with a, a fellow fisherman, Ezekiel Cordoba, uh, and there was a storm that lasted for five days. I mean, seven-foot boat is not very big when you're out doing deep-sea fishing like he was, and there was this massive storm that happened in five days. It blew him off course. There was a search party, but the search party was called off after two days because they couldn't see anything, and by the time that was all over, they're like, oh, he's probably not alive. He's probably dead. Well, eventually, after he kind of like was just uh, out at sea in the Pacific. He found a small island, swam to shore, and two locals found this bedraggled man, naked, clutching a knife, shouting in Spanish. And he was just there, not spoken to another person for a long time. According to Alvarenga, Cordoba, his, uh, his colleague who was in the boat with him uh, for the first four months, lost all hope after those four months into the voyage because he got sick from eating all the raw fish and refused to eat. Avarenga said that he himself contemplated suicide after his friend died, but that it was a strong religious faith that ultimately prevented him from doing so. Now this guy was out there, lost by himself. The fear of never being found led his friend to give up and almost led him, led him to come up, to give up. And I think though none of us have been lost at sea, I don't think, I haven't heard any of those stories from us, uh, this does parallel some of our own experiences because we get that feeling of lostness, of what it means to be utterly alone, that no one is really going to help. Maybe there was a search party, but it's long been since called off. And now it's up to us to survive on our own. Really, in lots of parts of our lives, we're lost. We try to make the best of what we can, there's bits here and bits there, but really we're navigating this world as someone lost at sea. There's blue all around, there's no sight of land. And just like this survivor, in our lostness, we are hungry. And in our lostness, we're scared. These two stories today that we're going to focus in on that, that Kathleen read for us in Mark 6, and um, if you have a, a Bible with you to keep it open or swipe to it or whatever, um, these two stories today teach us that Jesus has compassion on those who are lost. He finds them, he cares for them. Jesus feeds the hungry, he rescues us in our own crises. And there's two areas of compassion that we're gonna focus on. One is compassion for the crowds, in that first story, the feeding of the 5,000, and the second is compassion in a crisis. So we'll start with this first one here, compassion for the crowds. This is that first chunk, the first story, verses 31 through about 46. The situation here, Jesus and his disciples, they're working nonstop. They're not getting any breaks. Ministry life is, is not like you have a clock you can punch out on. It's hard, and it's good for everyone um, to take a break. And Jesus knows this, so he wants to get a bit of silence. He wants to recharge. But people saw him on the boat as he was trying to leave to do so, and so they tracked him down. They saw he checked into a solitary place on Facebook. They're like, oh, I know where he is. I'm going to go find him. Um, so they tracked him down, and now these people are crowding him again. 
And Jesus sees this large crowd, instead of like getting angry or frustrated, just be like, I just want to be alone, people. Um, he has compassion on them. He's not disturbed and angry. He has compassion. Because he sees these people pressing in on him from all around looking for healing. And they're in need. They're sheep without a shepherd, he thinks. They're running every which way, chasing after what they think will give them what they need, anxious that they won't eat tomorrow, literally that they won't eat tomorrow. They're isolated, they're scattered all over the place, and he has compassion. Now, sheep by themselves are not clever. Uh, they're not strong. They don't have any weapons defensively or offensively. They're just kind of there. And without a shepherd to take care of them, uh, they die, basically. I don't know that much about sheep, but I just know that they're not entirely intelligent. Without a shepherd, sheep are lost. Lost animals get hungry, and hungry animals get desperate. And in the smallest of moments, Jesus sees this. He sees this lostness. He sees this uh, kind of anxiety, and he has compassion. Now, Jesus, I mean, I've, as we've read these stories so far, going through this, this book of Mark, um, Jesus has been healing people, he's been teaching them, and very few people seem to be getting it. And his own disciples are like the worst. They don't, they don't understand anything. And this is Jesus, God himself, who through his word, the world was created. I would think that'd be very frustrating. I created this entire world and these people aren't getting what I'm about. But Jesus isn't angry here, he's compassionate because he, finds, he knows that he himself is the shepherd that we need to lead us to peace and to rest, to care for those who would be lost otherwise, because Jesus sees us where we are. Now, we don't maybe first identify as lost. It's not like we go up to someone at a party, like, oh, how are you doing? Ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm lost. But, you know, maybe a search party, like, but it's not something that we say. Um, but Jesus knows, really, deep down, we have those feelings of lostness. And without him, we are lost. A commentator uh, that I was reading pointed out that a shepherd is needed only when there are no fences. He is someone who stays with his sheep at all costs, guiding, protecting, walking them through the fields. He's not just a person who raises sheep. He's a person who cares for them. He leads sheep to food and water and is always concerned about the sheep's condition. They gather lambs that they cannot keep up in their arms. They seek out lost sheep, and when they find them, they carry them on their back, back to the fold. They guard against predators and thieves. It's a dirty job, it's a hard job, and it's not like it's a glorifying job either. So Jesus being this compassionate shepherd um, led first to him teaching. So it's first about Jesus, whoa, wrong button. Teaching. Uh, can you help me out there, Will? Got to get the young guy to work the computer stuff. Oh, man. So he had compassion for the crowds. Ah, there it is. So uh, Jesus was teaching. Um, in verse 34, it says that, th and this is coming right out of Jesus' compassion. Um, so he began teaching them many things. He saw they were a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them lots of things. So Jesus' teaching doesn't come from him trying to, like, puff himself up. It comes from his compassion towards us first. He's teaching these things to us in some way uh, is how Jesus cares for us. Because without his teaching, we're lost. We're left to ourselves to figure things out. With his teaching, we aren't lost. When Christina and I first traveled outside our own home country in America, the first place we visited was England years ago. And a friend of ours who was trying to get us to move over here, it worked, 
um, asked us a good question. He said, you could have went anywhere the first time you traveled out of America. You could have went anywhere. Why did you choose to come to England? And we didn't really know at the time. I think we felt, even though we couldn't explain it, um, we felt like some part of us was connected to this place that we had actually never visited before. We couldn't explain why or how, but a part of our heart was connected here. And in Jesus' compassion, he could have went anywhere with the lost. He's Jesus. He, obviously, he can do anything he wants, as we've been reading stories. But he, cho he chose to teach them first. So I think that's part of Jesus' heart is in his teaching for us. And understanding who he is and what he's done in this world. So we will be lost to the extent that we don't listen to his teaching. He's teaching the crowds then and us today about the good news of being made whole. The good news of getting unlost. And teaching gives us who are lost a way, a road, a direction, a place to go. His compassion, though, didn't just stop with, um, with, with just teaching, but it led to feeding, to spiritual stuff and to physical stuff. So apparently, Jesus, in his teaching here, had a lot to say because people are sitting there the entire day. It's getting late in the day, and people are just listening to Jesus teaching. The crowds are there, and they're listening. Nobody has eaten yet, and people around this time wouldn't normally have three meals, especially if you were poorer, like generally the people who come out um, for Jesus, they would have two meals. You'd have dinner and then any other meal you can kind of get at some point during the day. So probably at this point, these people have not eaten at all. It's getting late in the day, talking in the afternoon at least. And uh, these people, they're not rich. Like they're barely making it. It's not like they have a whole lot of fat stores to rely on. I mean, if you miss a day's work, you miss a day's food. And hunger was just a normal part of life. Unlike our well-fed lives, you know, we say we're starving, but it just means we're, we're kind of hungry or we want to have food. We want to taste food. I'm starving. I'm going to say it later. I know I will. Now, these people, they didn't have a problem keeping weight off. I mean, they had a problem putting it on. So the hunger is real. It's not like uh, going to a conference for a few hours and like, oh, man, there's no coffee and biscuit break. I'm dying over here. Like, this is like their, their day. They have not eaten yet. So they, there's hungry people, maybe somewhat desperate, somewhat anxious people. They're in a remote place. It's deserted. There aren't any corner stores or chippies to run to. No KFC for Will. Um, these people came from neighboring villages. So they, they maybe walked a bit to get to where Jesus is. And now the disciples, because all these people are coming to them and to Jesus, the disciples feel a bit responsible for them. And they let Jesus know it's getting late. Of course, Jesus knows what time it is. It's kind of like when you're with your partner somewhere and they want to leave the party. You're like, well, you know, it's uh, time. It's getting a little late. Like, I, we all know what time it is. Just as a way of saying, what are you going to do about this? That's really the question. And so the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? To the one who created the sun, who created time itself. So he tells the disciples to feed them. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah, that's right. How about you go feed them? They're like, uh, there's like a million people out there. Like, wh how are we going to feed them? We we're not rich. We don't have all this money. And we don't, basically, the amount of money it would take to feed them, according to the disciples, is about 10,000 pounds. Like, I don't have 10,000 pounds to feed these people. Again, the disciples, as we see often, are frustrated with Jesus. They just don't get him. And Jesus doesn't take, he takes it all in stride. He doesn't kind of reprimand them for their maybe kind of loose tongue or something. He just asks what they have. It's like, oh, well, okay, well, let me know what you have. In verse 38, it says, uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. He's like, all right, well, um, everybody sit down. He organizes people to sit down. He gives thanks to the food. And the meager offering through Jesus makes everyone satisfied, is enough for everybody. 
Now, what, what a crazy kind of a miracle that this is. I mean, it's amazing that we just read that. I mean, Kathleen read it right. They're kind of like, 5,000 men, and that's not even including the women and children. 5,000 men were fed. Now, Jesus, why did Jesus ask the disciples to do that? He's asking the disciples to do something that he knows that they can't do. He knows that they don't have enough food. He knows they don't have like massive stores of money. Why is he asking the disciples to feed these people? I think in one situation, or one, one perspective to look at it, is he was giving them an opportunity to surrender to him. They are in a situation beyond human control. Jesus doesn't remove them from that situation. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about them. Like, let them sort it out themselves. He doesn't remove them from the problem. He tells them to feed the people. Now, the disciples, they don't understand. And we learn later in verse 52 at the end of these stories that they don't believe. Their hearts aren't softened towards Jesus. They're, they're hardened towards Jesus. And so hardened hearts, as the Bible often teaches, does not lead to understanding. They should have brought their lack to Christ, the same way that these people were maybe bringing their lack to the disciples. So what is Christ doing in all of this? What, it, why, why would he choose a miracle like this to, to have in history, and not only that, but to be part of Scripture? If this is a sign, and that's how we kind of view miracles, they're not just amazing things to marvel at in themselves, they're a sign for something else. If this is a sign, what is that sign pointing to? Well, Jesus, through this miraculous event, is teaching us he is bringing God's kingdom. And Mark is doing a very clever thing here. We've got to look at this in a second. Uh, and one that other New Testament writers do as well. Mark is referencing the historical exodus the one where the Israelites were freed from their slavery in the Old Testament and Moses kind of led them out into the wilderness and ultimately to the, the promised land and uh, to, to be able to freely worship God. But on their way to the new home, the Israelites had that long wilderness wandering in the desert for 40 years. They wandered around in remote places for 40 years and they did this because of their unbelief. So right off we see like some kind of similar themes that Mark's bringing out, a larger thematic um, uh, connections, but there are some very intentional, specific details too. Because right from the start, when Jesus says, when Mark says that Jesus has compassion, the way Mark is writing is calling back um, from the book of Numbers, from Numbers 27. That um, I'll just read it. Numbers 27, starting in verse 15, says, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of all spirits of all flesh, appoint someone over the congregation. These are all the Israelites he's leading out who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is saying, I see these people as sheep without a shepherd. Moses was asking, God, will you provide somebody to lead these people so they may not be like sheep without a shepherd? Also, the detail about how Jesus arranges the people like Mark didn't say, and the people sat down. Mark said, and Jesus told them to sit down in groups of hundreds or as fifties. That's exactly how Israel was organized when it was walking through the wilderness together. And the main grumble of the people in the wilderness in the Old Testament was food. We don't have enough food. When they did have food, it wasn't the right food. We want the food that we had when we were back when we were slaves instead of food that, gives, that God gives us when we're free. We want food where we don't have to trust in God so that we can just kind of figure it out ourselves. We want food that we can store for a long time. It's all about food. How are we going to eat? What are we going to do with all this? And Moses was always struggling with this because he couldn't feed them. So in this story, in the New Testament, we have a compassionate leader looking at sheep without a shepherd. These sheep are hungry people in a wilderness 
organized in the way that Israel was in the wilderness. So obvious ties in going on here. The reason why Mark is doing this isn't to talk about the Exodus, it's to talk about the new Exodus that Jesus is bringing. So just as God led the lost, hungry, needy Israelites to their earthly home, Jesus is leading the lost, hungry, and needy people to a new home, a better home. And in this new Exodus, we have a better shepherd. Let's say, by the way, this is a mosaic from Church of the Multiplication is what it's called, which is um, in Galilee right near where Mark says that this story took place. So there's a church that was built there, and one of the mosaics is of this miracle that happened, which I thought was interesting and I hadn't put it in. So, but in this new Exodus, we have a better shepherd than Moses. Jesus is able to provide the people in the desert, but Moses couldn't. Jesus multiplying the bread and fishes himself <laughs> means I will sustain you and giving spiritual and physical nourishment, because he's also teaching them as well. Jesus knows we can't live without him, and life isn't worth living without him. So we have a better shepherd. We also have better provision. I mean, it's not like people had a little bite to eat and then had to move along. Everyone ate until they were satisfied. And there was more than, a left, more than enough left over, even after 5,000 men plus women and children ate. And as if to let the disciples know who he is, it's like, you guys just aren't getting it. Each one of them had a basket full of bread and fish left over. There were 12 baskets left over. Who do you think hauled those baskets away? They were there looking at the leftover bread and fish. So we have a better, we have better provision. Um, we also have a better home. So our home isn't a place first, it's a person. It's Jesus himself. He's calling people from the remote places of our lives to God's kingdom, one that isn't tied to a postcode, it's tied to Christ. In Jesus' kingdom, there's always more left over. There's always room for more, and all who come are given the gift of contentment, and there's never any lack. That's, we could talk more, but I think those are some of the big, broad things that Mark is teaching us through bringing the old exodus into this new exodus. And the amazing reality is what Jesus is teaching, has been teaching his disciples, is they're completely missing out on this. I mean, imagine if you saw someone multiply bread and fishes somehow magically, like miraculously, we don't know what it looked like if all of a sudden they were there when no one was looking, um, or all of a sudden just started like piling up. I don't know how it looked. But of course, we miss Jesus in our lives as well, don't we? because our lives aren't permeated by the wonder of God's kingdom breaking through in our world and how much we miss out in our lives because of that. The disciples see this problem and they think it's a money issue. Verse 37 says, what are we gonna do? Spend that much on bread and give it to them? Surely you've had this thought, I know I do. If there's a problem, I could probably solve it if I just had more money. Home finances, man, it's a massive anxiety for me. Are we saving enough? Are we, are we like, too constricted with our money? Are we giving away? Like, what, what, are, are we doing well with this? Or finances for the church. I mean, how many churches have had to close their doors because there's just not enough resource for God's mission? Now, though money is involved with home finances, church finances, or any other kind of problems you want to think of, often money's involved, the answer generally isn't more money. And especially here. These are people who would starve probably otherwise. Money is not the main issue. It's who is in control, me or Jesus. If I'm in control, I'll be anxious and I'll solely rely on myself to come through. And my own natural power, which, especially with respect to money, is just not very much. The disciples by themselves were given a task they could not fulfill themselves. 
Part of the task itself is relying on Jesus. Just like the disciples, I need to surrender to Jesus. And often, like the disciples, I just don't. So maybe a response to Christ should have been when he's like, well, oh, yeah, all these people, how about you feed them? Maybe the disciples should have said, we can't do this, Lord, but we know you can. Help us. Jesus also asked the disciples this, to feed them, because that's what it means to be a disciple. It means to serve others. It means to serve others often at your own expense, to have the same kind of compassion as the one we follow, the same kind of trust in the Father that the Son has. So dependence and service are two marks of what it means to be a disciple. And we get to do this as disciples because first we are the recipients of God's grace. First we have been given that food ourselves, not for us to keep it, but for us to also give it to others. We are hungry for more, just like the crowds who haven't eaten. And Jesus sees us in our lack and through his kingdom generously gives us what we need. So when we pray that God would direct us to where he wants and then find ourselves in overwhelming situations that we can't control, that's a good thing because that's God directing you where you need to be. When we see so much need and realize that we don't have very much to offer, when we look at issues even just in Charlton about homelessness or addictions or people ostracized from the church because of gender or sexual identity, I mean, what do we have to offer really? And yet Jesus tells us, you give them something to eat. And our meager offerings get multiplied in Jesus' kingdom for spiritual and physical needs. I mean, just think of Jesus. He came to earth to change the world, to bring a new kingdom that he's bringing here in Mark. And he left it. All he had were these 12 lame disciples, like hiding away, not really getting everything. But God loves to make big things happen with our lack. It illustrates how he's the king, how we don't have it all together. And for followers of Jesus, we aren't the heroes of our own stories. We are not supposed to tell stories of how God has worked as if we are like magically, amazingly part of it. God is the hero of our story. And in the story that he's writing, there's always room for more. So we find ourselves hungry. Jesus satisfies us. We find others hungry. Well, there are 12 baskets of overflowing food that we have with us. So we're fed, called to bring others to, to eat for spiritual and physical needs. That's how Jesus has compassion on these crowds in this first story. The second story where Jesus walks on the water. I mean, there's so much here. We could spend like an entire series even on that, that first story. Um, but the second one is about how Jesus has compassion on us in a crisis. So just after this miraculous feeding, Jesus goes back to his original plan of trying to get away a bit, trying to recharge by himself to pray to the Father. And so he tells his disciples to go on ahead of him. He tells the crowd to go home, and he goes off by himself. Well, then the night comes, and the boat is in the middle of the lake, and Jesus is by himself on the land. He saw somehow that the disciples are straining against the wind, and they're struggling out there. And the sea, for your average Israelite, for your average Jewish person, is a symbol of chaos. It was never, the sea was never something that could be completely figured out or tamed. It was always um, a, a chaos or, or questioned. So they're in this kind of area of terror. The wind is overwhelming them, and they really have no other recourse other than to just kind of plod away at the oars. And then Jesus comes. He comes walking on the lake. What? And even though they were up against overwhelming nature themselves, like they're there thinking maybe they're going to die in this boat. When they see Jesus, that's when they get scared. That's when they get terrified. That's when they cry out. 
like their insides are shaken. They do, what in the world is going on? They scream. And just like every other time in scripture when humans come into contact with supernatural beings, the first response is, don't be afraid or take courage. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. And as soon as he gets into the boat, the wind is calm. And the disciples are amazed. What is going on here? What a crazy story. What in the world is going on here? I think maybe the, one of the biggest takeaways for us, especially with respect to the previous story, is this is Jesus revealing who he is. Just as in the feeding of the 5,000, just as Jesus teaching us what he is about and who he is. And it starts off in verse 48, the end of it, with a few words that are easy to maybe read and not think there's very much about them, where he says, Jesus was about to pass by them. Now, this isn't one, an idea of like, Jesus was about to kind of like skirt by them. Oh, if they see me, I'm going to need to help them. I just need to pass so they can, I can do my walking on the water thing. Now, Mark is, talk, is using these words, I think, really specifically. They're not just throwaway words. Because uh, by passing by them, uh, I think he's referring to how God reveals himself in the Old Testament. In Exodus 33, how does God reveal himself to Moses? He let his glory pass by him. In 1 Kings 19, how does God speak to his prophet Elijah? The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The Lord passed by these disciples, and they missed it. God does not want us to miss us passing by him today. So three things that Christ reveals about himself as God passing by us. First is power and authority. This is Jesus in control of nature. This isn't the first time either. He's done this before with the disciples. But he's in control of the law of, of physics. I mean, who else can walk on water? Like, nobody. It just doesn't, doesn't work. Who else has the law of, laws of physics under their control? I think we wrongly think that some things are impossible, and of course, for us, they are. But for God, even the laws of nature are his servants. So Jesus has a power and authority that is kind of otherworldly, that completely freaks us out when we come into contact with it. But it's not just otherworldly because Jesus is close to us. Jesus is present. As Jesus was a long way off on the land, he saw the disciples were in trouble. He could have calmed everything for, for them while he was safely on the land. Or he could have walked out on the water, showed himself to be this powerful God, and then calmed everything while on the water. But he chose to get the boat with them, and that's when everything became calm. He didn't stay out there. In a storm, Jesus is with us, and not just kind of outside. He is with us in the boat, and his presence commands peace. I think the third thing that I just find really important in this story is mystery, an often maybe overlooked aspect of who God is, maybe especially in evangelical worlds. We will never completely understand God and his ways. And sometimes when he shows up, it's going to freak us out. Jesus chose to reveal himself in a very mysterious way. He chose this for a reason. I mean, they were like, this is a ghost. This is a phantom. It was terrifying. And in this kind of mysterious Bronte-like setting, we find our God offering a way of rescue that wasn't previously available. I mean... Who is this? Did we just read this story together? Who is this? You cannot be complacent and understand this. There must be 
a little part of us too that feels that terror, imagining us in that boat, in that kind of situation. That we see this powerful, mysterious presence. How can we see that person and not be in awe? And what's crazy for the disciples is isn't the first time that Jesus has miraculously calmed the waters and yet they're still completely freaked out. It brings to mind the story in Mark 4 where uh, Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat and they all think they're about to die and Jesus gets up and Jesus just basically says, be quiet, and everything is quiet. And then the disciples ask the question of themselves, like, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, the answer coming from Jesus is, I am. But again, the disciples don't quite get it. They're too busy freaking out, kind of like us. The disciples don't have an intellectual problem. They have a heart problem. It's not that they need to know more data about Jesus. In verse 52, it says they not understood about their loaves. They not understood about the previous miracle, which is a hardened heart problem. So they couldn't understand who Jesus was when he was revealing himself. Their hearts were hardened. And so we see these two events are connected, the feeding of the 5,000 and the, uh, the calming of the waters. If the disciples understood what Jesus was doing when he fed the 5,000 men, as the Lord cares for his, the needs for his people, as the good shepherd, just as God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, that Jesus is a better Moses, leading us to a better world with better provision, they would have been prepared to understand how Jesus was revealing himself on the water in that very kind of scary, terrifying way. In an overwhelming situation uh, where there was a, a, a dearth, it was a desert, there was a remote place they needed food, or in a place where there was too much going on, it was overwhelming, both, both unable for us as humans to deal with, Jesus reveals himself as God. Now, I've had um, quite a few jobs in my life. Apparently, Will's family likes to joke about the many jobs that I've had. Um, one of them was a personal trainer in a gym. It was my first job out of uni. Uh, it sounds like a great job, but it was okay. Um, I was still, uh, at the time, I was still living with my friends that were all uni students, and our house was really social. There was like five or six of us, depending on the time of who was living there. Uh, most of us playing a band together. We loved having people over, having big like parties and things like that. Well, in my job, I had the morning shift, which meant I had to open up the gym at 5.30 a.m. every morning, like, and that's opening up the gym at 5.30. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every morning. I was tired basically all the time. Um, my, I mean, my alarm in the morning was set for 4 a.m. every morning. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, the house, being social as it was, uh, meant I would rarely go to sleep before 12 or 1. So that's like every day, that's kind of how it worked out. And this is for about a year. I mean, I, I remember not remembering how I got to work in the morning. Like, all, that was very normal. Like, how did I drive here? I don't know. Like, that, that's not a good thing for that to happen all the time. I mean, it'd be like around 7 or 8 a.m., and I'd realize, yeah, I don't remember what happened this morning. Hope I didn't kill anybody. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how did I get there? I, most of the time, I was kind of grumpy. Well, maybe all the time I was kind of grumpy. I was out of it a lot. My memory wasn't very good. Uh, I mean, it was good to make money working. That was great, because I didn't have any money before, because I was a student. Uh, but it definitely didn't feel like it was worth it all the time. Now, that is not a good system. I do not recommend that for anybody. Go to sleep at one, wake up at four, and then try and live. I was exhausted. I mean, that kind of living is just not sustainable. You can't keep it up. My problem wasn't that I needed to be more efficient in my hours of sleep. My problem wasn't that I needed to um, like drink 
more efficient coffee or whatever kind of like caffeine additive I could have in my life. My problem wasn't that I needed to develop a Coke addict or something, a Coke addiction. It was that the whole system of sleeping late and getting up early, that thing was broken. That was the problem, the system itself. My problem was my system of living and no matter how hard I could have tried in that system, I would always be broken. Now maybe you find yourself striving hard, working hard, and really not getting anywhere. Straining against the oars is a metaphor that you can understand. And the only thing that you can see, the only possibility, is being swallowed by the sea eventually. <coughs> You're exhausted. You think the only answer is to row harder because well, that's, I just have oars. It's the only thing I have in my hands. And yet the winds won't calm down. What can you do? Rowing seems to not be doing anything, but it's the only thing that I feel like I can do in the moment. Well, that's one system. Jesus offers another system, one that transcends the chaos of nature, one that takes into account our inability. Because if you're here, exhausted, burned out, it might not be because you aren't doing enough. It might be because you're just in the wrong system. You might be in the system that if you try hard enough and you're clever enough and you just do enough, then you'll make it. Well, let me tell you, I have many pastoral conversations with lots of people. I have yet to find someone who basically has everything all together. That person I have not found to exist yet. Even people who seem like they have everything sorted on the outside, none of us do. So why continue in the system that leaves us exhausted? It doesn't really give us what we want. Stop our oars for just a moment and let's look at Jesus coming towards us in ways that we can't explain and maybe in some ways that make us very uncomfortable. But this Jesus is the only answer to calm the chaos in our lives. He doesn't just stop there on the water. He isn't out there on the land. He's in the boat with us, in the chaos with us. He tells us to take courage. He is compassionate in our anxieties and by his word, he calms the winds. It didn't matter how strong we were because nature will take out oars every time. But with Jesus, he offers a new system. Jesus uses the word kingdom. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, Jesus says this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Oops, sorry. Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life and I'll show you how to take a real rest. In our chaos, in our lack, Jesus is revealing himself. We try and cover that up quickly, but that is areas where often Jesus reveals himself. When we're lost, Jesus is there, and not just near, he's with us. Will our hearts be hardened like the disciples, or will we have faith to see him when he passes by? In verse 53, uh, we see that they end up going to a place they didn't originally intend. They end up going to Gennesaret, and they originally were planning to go to Bethsaida. But people, even though it wasn't a place that they were kind of on their itinerary, uh, the people have already heard about Jesus, and they're already kind of coming out and um, looking for healing from Jesus. I think what we find, regardless of where Jesus go, the reality still stands. Jesus is still the compassionate king, still, still healing those who reach out in faith. And the same is, of course, true today. All who touch his cloak are healed. Now, how well did these people that he's healing understand him? How well did they get 
what he was doing, that he was the king, that he was the Messiah, that he's bringing this new kingdom. How well did they get that what Jesus was doing was saying, uh, this is a new exodus. I am better than Moses. I'm the better Israel, all those kinds of things. We don't know. Regardless of their knowledge, though, or lack of it, they all reached out in faith. And faith is what matters in Christ's kingdom. Because this story, just like all the stories we've read, is an invitation to come and eat, to be with Jesus. We're hungry and he feeds us. In our fear, he is our present calm. We're lost. Jesus leads us home. And that's what this table is a symbol of, how we depend on Jesus for everything. So like the bread that's broken on the cross, Jesus' body was broken for us. And like the blood that was poured out on the cross is a symbol of Jesus' blood poured out for us. That all who eat and all who drink will find rest, will find peace in the chaos, will be given a new system, one that frees us. Now this table is for those who in our chaos we have surrendered to Jesus. But if you haven't trusted in him yet, please don't eat and drink um, because you might be doing something with your body that basically you just don't really believe in your heart. Um, but it might be that this is the first time to take that step. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus before and this is the time to do it. If that's true, we invite you to come to eat and drink with us. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. You just have to be um, surrendering to Jesus together. Isaiah 55.1 says this, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. All who have no money, come buy and eat. And Jesus has paid the price for us that we get to enjoy together today. So as we're, gonna, we're about to sing some songs, and as we sing, um, we'll eat and drink. And on your left side is gluten-free bread if you need that. What we're going to finish with is the Jewish blessing over the bread, the same blessing that Jesus would have been given when he broke the loaves and the fishes. So I'll pray, and then we'll start singing together. So pray with me, please. Blessed be you, Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come from the earth. And blessed be you, Jesus, you yourself, who became the bread from heaven, that the earth and heaven might be one. Amen.